if you would only listen to these laws. Those words with which our Pasha begins contain a verb that's a fundamental motif of the book of Devarim. The verb is Shema. It occurred in last week's parasha in the most famous line of the whole of Judaism, Shema Yisrael. It occurs later in this week's parasha in the second paragraph of the Shema, Vayayim Shema Tishma'u, it shall be if you surely listen. In fact, the verb appears no less than 92 times in Devarim as a whole. And we often miss the significance of this word because of what I call the fallacy of translatability. The assumption that one language is fully translatable into another. We hear a word translated from one language to another and assume that it means the same in both, but often it doesn't. Languages are only partially translatable into one another. The key terms of one civilization are not often not fully reproducible in another. For instance, the Greek word megalopsuchos, for example, Aristotle's great-souled man, who's great and knows he is and carries himself with aristocratic pride, is untranslatable into a moral system like Judaism, in which humility is a virtue, an idea that Aristotle wouldn't have understood at all. The English word tact has no precise equivalent in Hebrew, and so on. This is particularly so in the case of the verb shma. Listen, for example, to the way the opening words of this week's parasha have been translated into English. If you hearken to these precepts, if you completely obey these laws, if you pay attention to these laws, if you heed these ordinances, because you hear these judgments. In other words, there's no single English word that means to hear, to listen, to heed, to pay attention to, and to obey. And Shema also means to understand, as in the story of the Tower of Babel, when God says, come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand Yishma'u, one another. As I've argued elsewhere, one of the most striking facts about the Torah is that although it contains 613 commands, it does not contain a word that means to obey. When such a word was needed in modern Hebrew, the verb Litzayet was borrowed from Aramaic. The verb used by the Tehara in place of to obey is Shema, and this is of the highest possible significance because it means that blind obedience is not a virtue in Judaism. God wants us to understand the laws he's commanded us. He wants us to reflect on why this law, not that. He wants us to listen, to reflect, to pay attention, to seek to understand, to internalize and to respond. He wants us to become a listening people. Ancient Greece was a visual culture, a culture of art, architecture, theater and spectacle. For the Greeks, generally, and Plato specifically, knowing was a kind of seeing. Judaism, as Freud pointed out in Moses' monotheism, is a non-visual culture. We worship a God who can't be seen. And making sacred images, icons, is absolutely forbidden. In Judaism, we don't see God. We hear God. Knowing is a form of listening. Ironically, Freud himself, deeply ambivalent though he was about Judaism, created in psychoanalysis the listening cure, because psychoanalysis is in fact listening as therapy.
It follows that in Judaism, listening is a deeply spiritual act. To listen to God is to be open to God. That's what Moses is saying throughout Devarim. If only you would listen. So it is with leadership. Indeed, with all forms of interpersonal relationship, often the greatest gift we can give someone is to listen to them. Viktor Frankl, who survived Auschwitz and went on to create a new form of psychotherapy based on man's search for meaning, once told the story of a patient of his who phoned him in the middle of the night to tell him calmly that she was about to commit suicide. He kept her on the phone for two hours, giving her every conceivable reason to live. Eventually, she said that, yes, she'd changed her mind and would not end her life. When Frankel next saw the woman, he asked her which of his many reasons had been decisive, which persuaded her to change her mind. None of them, she replied. Why then did you decide not to commit suicide? She replied that the fact that someone was prepared to listen to her for two hours in the middle of the night convinced her that life was worth living after all. As chief rabbi, I was involved in resolving a number of highly intractable Aguna cases, situations in which a husband was unwilling to give his wife a get so that she could remarry. We resolved all these cases not by legal devices, but by the simple act of listening, deep listening, in which we were able to convince both sides that we'd heard their pain and their sense of injustice. This took many hours of total concentration and a principled absence of judgment and direction. Eventually our listening absorbed the acrimony, and the couple were able to resolve their differences together. Listening is intensely therapeutic. Before I became chief rabbi, I was head of our rabbinical training seminary, Jews College. And there in the 1980s, we ran one of the most advanced practical rabbinics programs ever devised. It included a three-year program in counseling. The professionals we recruited to run the course told us that they had one precondition. We had to agree to take all the participants away to an enclosed location for two days. Only those who are willing to do this would be admitted to the course. We didn't know in advance that what the counselors were planning to do was to teach us the method pioneered by Carl Rogers, known as non-directive or person-centered therapy. This involves active listening and reflective questioning, but no guidance whatsoever on the part of the therapist. As the nature of the method became clear, the rabbis began to object. It seemed to oppose everything they stood for. To be a rabbi is to teach, to direct, to tell people what to do. The tension between the counselors and the rabbis grew almost to the point of crisis, so much so that we had to stop the course for an hour <clears throat> while we sought for some way of reconciling what the counselors were doing and what the Torah seemed to be saying. That's when we began to reflect for the first time as a group on the spiritual dimension of listening, of Shema Yisrael. The deep truth behind person-centered therapy, is that listening is the key virtue of the religious life. That's what Moses was saying throughout Devarim. If we want God to listen to us, we have to be prepared to listen to him. And if we learn to listen to him, then eventually we will learn to listen to our fellow humans, the silent cry of the lonely, the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, people in existential pain.
when God appeared to King Solomon in a dream and asked him what he would like to be given, Solomon replied, Lev Shomaya, literally, a listening heart, to judge the people. The choice of words is significant. Solomon's wisdom lay at least in part in his ability to listen, to hear the emotion behind the words and to sense what was being left unsaid as well as what was said. It's common to find leaders who speak, very rare to find leaders who listen. But listening often makes the difference. Listening matters in a moral environment as insistent on human dignity as is Judaism. The very act of listening is a form of respect. The royal family in Britain is known always to arrive on time and to depart on time. So I'll never forget the occasion. Her aides told me that they'd never seen anything like it before, when the Queen stayed for two hours longer than her scheduled departure time. The day was the 27th of January 2005, and the occasion the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. The Queen had invited survivors to a reception at St. James's Palace. Each had a story to tell, and the Queen took the time to listen to every one of them. One after another came up to me and said, Sixty years ago, I didn't know whether tomorrow I would be alive, and here I am today, talking to the Queen. That act of listening was one of the most royal acts of graciousness I have ever witnessed. Listening is a profound affirmation of the humanity of the other. In the encounter at the burning bush, when God summoned Moses to be a leader, Moses replied, I'm not a man of words, not yesterday, not the day before, not from the time you first spoke to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Why would God choose to lead the Jewish people, a man who found it hard to speak? Perhaps because one who cannot speak learns how to listen. A leader is one who knows how to listen to the unspoken cry of others and to the still small voice of God.